0: Hello and welcome to episode 1195 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs and from our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ben. The song that you are hearing right now is uh, obviously inspired by this podcast, not just a coincidence this song was provided to us as a surprise gift by a number of members of the Facebook group led by Mark Arduini, who has been mentioned on this podcast recently. He's the one who did the calculations for the extra inning runner on second rule probabilities, and he came up with this idea to get a song written for us and for the podcast and 35 people in the Facebook group chipped in and sent us this song over the weekend. And it's technically, I guess, by Benny and the Jeffs. It's called Effectively Wild. It is actually by Matt Farley, who is the guy behind the San Francisco sports band, which writes many, many, many songs. We played a Tim Lincecum song by them on the podcast recently, and now there's an Effectively Wild song. So I was not expecting this. You
1: have had a number of songs written for you and your podcasts. <laughs> I true. feel like I'm basically just a passenger on this one. This is <laughs> people shower you with with gifts. I think it's a, this is a reflection on your character and your uh, your pro- prolific your character. We're going to stick with character.
0: (laughs) I think you're included in this shower. uh, You're mentioned in this song, so I don't know. It's very gratifying. It's a a fun (laughs) song. It's on YouTube and many other places. I will link to it in the usual places if you want to go and listen to it and download it for yourself in full. And thanks to Mark, and thanks to everyone else who chipped in. This sort of thing really just makes this podcast rewarding. I think this is the sort of thing that when... Sam had to leave, and I was trying to figure out whether I should try to recruit you and continue this thing. It was things like an unexpected random gift of an Effectively Wild-inspired song that made me want to keep going. So thanks to Mark and everyone else. In the same
1: way that you said the other uh, the other week, that you didn't really care that much about the minor league wage potential inclusion in the omnibus bill, et cetera, You know what I'm talking about, until you mm. heard that the independent leagues could be affected. <laughs> And that, uh-huh. that was kind of a personal touch. Now, I've never really cared before about the Grammys, but now we're going to win this song some <laughs> awards. So,
0: so <laughs> spread the word. We're climbing the charts. Yeah. So we're doing not only a team preview podcast today, but the final team preview podcast today, the last in our 15 episode 30 team series. We'll be talking to Anthony DiComo of MLB.com about the Mets and RJ Anderson of CBS Sports about the Rays in just a little while. But... Couple things I guess we can get to before then. I wrote a couple things about baseball that I want to tell you about, but. There were a few extensions announced. I don't know whether any of them is notable enough to discuss, as we talked about recently. Some extensions aren't really that exciting, but I guess the Scott Kingery extension at least is notable in that he has not yet made his major league debut. So this is sort of the Jonathan Singleton contract, or I guess the Phillies hope it will not be the Jonathan Singleton contract, but same idea. And then, of course, your boy, Catel Marte, also signed to an extension, as was one of my favorites, Christian Vasquez with the Red Sox. So I guess right before opening day tends to be extension season.
1: Yeah, I don't know how much there is to read into because this is when the extensions get agreed to. And it's easy to to interpret these extensions as a reflection on the free agent market. And I know that I did that with Eugenio Suarez. And it's, it's true that they could be thinking that, but I forgot, how long is the Vasquez extension? I think it's only
0: three, three years and yeah. 13.
1: So that one's a that one's a shorter one, but Marte, yeah. that's five years with options, and Kingery is six years with options. So, I mean, those are extensions that are being signed that will, provided there is going to be a new CBA. I guess we don't know that for sure, <laughs> but that will be under the next CBA. So and there could be changes. Who knows what the market's going to look like? Down the road. But the the Kingry one is interesting for reasons that are almost immediately apparent. It does help the Phillies take care of the awkwardness of demoting him to the minors, even though putting him on the opening day roster, he doesn't really have a clear spot where he's going to play. Since they like Michael Franco, I think a little bit. They like JP Crawford more than Franco. They like Cesar Hernandez. A lot, they have players everywhere. They have so many players that they moved Reese Hoskins' position. So I don't know exactly what, what Kingery's going to do, but I guess one thing that does warrant mention, I guess, is that even though it seems very team-friendly that Kingery, or I should say Kingery's agents, gave the Phillies three team options, it really is effectively two team options, kind of, since had the Phillies sent Kingery down for even two weeks, then mm-hmm. that they would have had him for seven years. But that doesn't really change... Too much because now I I think the way it works out is that if the Phillies pick up all of the options, which happens if Kingery is good, then he will be 32 years old or thereabouts when he hits free agency, which God knows what free agency is going to look like in nine years. It could be dead. It could be terrific. But Kingery probably will not be in position to get that massive payday that he would if he were 29 or 30 or or 31. So whatever. I'm not going to disparage anyone for getting a minimum of $24 million guaranteed. (laughs) But it will be interesting the easy thing to say now is that, oh, this is
0: going to be the trend. It's going to be interesting if this is actually the trend, because it hasn't been yet. Right. Jonathan Singleton wasn't really a trend, so it takes more than one data point to make that kind of conclusion. But it's something worth monitoring. Of course, Ronald Acuna reportedly turned down a $30 million contract extension offer from the Braves, but he's kind of in a class of his own as a prospect, obviously. doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of uncertainty in his case. So... Two things I wanted to tell you about. One, I don't know if you've read, but it was posted on Monday at The Ringer. The other should probably be up by the time people hear this on Tuesday. So the first one was sort of inspired by emails from listeners that I've gotten over the years who have kept asking the same sort of question about catchers that I was not able to answer. So... I wrote this thing about catchers and usually when we write about catchers we're writing about catcher defense and framing and game calling and all that mysterious stuff that has been revealed to some degree by new stats but in this one i was curious about the impact of catcher defense essentially on catcher offense so there are a few ways i think that it has been postulated that maybe catchers might have a different experience at the plate and I've been asked about these things over the years quite a bit. So the first one, I don't know whether you've read this already. If not, I will just uh, quiz you. I guess I'll ask you to guess. But the first one is, do catchers get a different zone at the plate, a different sort of strike zone at the plate? The idea being either that... They know the strike zone really well because they have scouted the umpire and they've seen the umpire calling pitches and giving them strikes or not giving them strikes and so they have a good sense of the zone or just the fact that they have a rapport with the umpire that they're back there, they're both crouching together, they have some sort of solidarity here and you know even if they don't like each other they kind of have to be civil to each other because they are crouching close enough to touch throughout half the game so The idea is maybe catchers get some benefit from that. Maybe they get more favorable strike zones at the plate. I was able to examine this. Would you care to guess?
1: Okay, so your article is bookmarked for my evening reading, so I have not (laughs) gotten through uh, more than the first paragraph because then I had to do something else. But I'm pretty sure that I've played around with some sort of simple analysis along these lines some years ago, and I'm pretty sure, again... Uh, That I didn't really find much. So, if there is a difference, I would imagine that it is very slight.
0: Yeah. So, I did find something. And by I, I mean smarter people who helped me. (laughs) So, there is a stat at Baseball Prospectus called CSAA, called Strikes Above Average. And it's used for every type of player, really. There's catchers have CSAAs behind the plate. That is how you judge their ability to expand or shrink the strike zone by framing. Pitchers have CSAAs, some of them can kind of expand the zone by pitching to the corners or having great command, whatever it is, and it turns out that batters have CSAAs too, and this is a question I've gotten many times over the years, do batters have any effect on the strike zone? And I looked for any kind of correlation, whether it was, you know, maybe guys who are older, experience, reputation, maybe they get more favorable calls, maybe something to do with height, maybe something to do with just how good you are. If you're just a really good hitter, maybe you get better calls. If you're just very selective, you don't swing a lot or you don't swing at pitches outside the strike zone, maybe then you get better calls. Checked all of those things. Essentially, no correlation, no indication that that's the case. But... If you sort by position and you break it down and you look at, well, here's the strike zone that catchers get, basically their average called strikes above average (laughs) as a rate, catchers get clearly a better CSA than players at any other position. And so if you look at like the top 10... In most strikes or most runs gained from this over the last six seasons or so is what I checked It's not a lot It's like the leading guys have either gained or lost maybe a a win from this or so And it's like already baked into their offensive stats essentially But it is there And if you look at the top 10 over that span Seven of them have been catchers over that span And if you look at the bottom 10, no catchers And if you just look at the entire positional averages catcher clearly much better than the other positions and it seems like there's a real effect here it's not big it's not gonna change most games but it does sort of fall in line with what you would think or what you would suspect at least and of course, this method that Baseball Prospectus uses for these stats is very sensitive and it picks up on the count and the pitch type and the umpire and just, you know, all the factors that can affect a strike call, the pitcher, the batter handedness, all of that. So it seems to be real. It's not huge, but it seems to be real. And I talked to a couple catchers for this piece, Tyler Flowers and John Baker, who are both smart guys, think a lot about catching. And Baker... Definitely was not surprised that this is The case he thought it certainly Was the case and Flowers I think was a little more surprised Just because I think he takes it more personally When a call goes against him but Basically Baker said yeah it's that You don't want to have to crouch Behind home plate next to a guy who's mad at You because you just called a borderline Pitch a strike on him so he thinks Now and then maybe the catcher gets The benefit of the doubt so that's kind of cool And that works is it's sort of A distant proxy but people have asked frequently
1: whether umpires respond worse to catchers who are known for their pitch framing because they're they're being tricked and so you could say well if umpires are sensitive to the identity of the batter maybe umpires are sensitive to the identity of the catcher but then on the other hand i don't know how these catchers write in terms of framing and i would imagine if you did an analysis there wouldn't be anything there but you would think if umpires were annoyed at the catchers for essentially lying to them or trying to lie to them (laughs) that they would penalize them across the board so maybe not
0: yeah That's another thing that Flowers said, actually. He said that he's not one of these guys who just can keep quiet. Like if a call goes against him, he will say something, even though he's conscious of not trying to spoil things for his pitcher. He's still just, you know, if the umpire doesn't do his job well, it affects how Flowers does his job. And so occasionally he will say something. But he said that he kind of has a code, like he won't try to gaslight the umpire. He won't try to Distort the truth. He might with his framing, which is excellent, but he won't say, like, that was a strike or that wasn't a strike if he doesn't believe it. He said 99% of the time, he said if it's like a high leverage, must win, season altering game, he might kind of distort what he thought of one call just in the hopes of getting a future makeup call. But he said, for the most part, he tries to be honest because. He wants every strike behind the plate, obviously, but he doesn't want every pitch to be called a strike against him when he's hitting, so he's trying to balance that in a way. So I thought that was interesting. Agreed. And there were two more theories that you researched. (laughs) That's right. The second hypothesis, this is another one that I've gotten Effectively Wild listener emails about more times than I can count and have always said, I don't know, someone should look at that, but it would be hard. So this theory is catchers have an advantage against pitchers they have previously caught. The idea being they know these guys, they know their stuff, they know their pitch selection, they know their release point, they know what they look like, they know how they like to pitch, and therefore maybe they're more comfortable when they actually face them and there's an element of surprise that the pitcher is deprived of, and therefore it would be an advantage for the catcher. What do you think?
1: The Benji Molina World Series theory. That's what this is. Mm. And my yeah, answer I so. is I don't know, but I'm going to go ahead and say <laughs>
0: again, no, nothing. That's what I thought. But <laughs> turns out it seems like there's something here too. And again, not enormous, not going to swing most games one way or the other, but it does seem like there's something here. So. With the help of Rob McEwen at Baseball Perspectives, I was able to go way back, like back to the 50s. There was data and essentially just divided catchers into when they were facing a pitcher they previously caught and when they were facing all other pitchers for the most part. And this was using park adjusted stats and adjusted for opponent quality too, just in case there was a difference in the pool of pitchers they faced in each of these groups. And it was comparing the catchers. To their own performance, essentially, or to their seasonal baseline. So I think it's telling. And so in more than 60,000 plate appearances, when facing pitchers previously caught, which is pretty large, there was a five-point advantage in true average for the catchers who were facing a pitcher they had previously caught, which is not a ton. It's like maybe two and a half runs or something over 500 plate appearances. It's like a quarter of a win, something like that. It's possible that the effect is more dramatic if the catcher has recently caught the pitcher or frequently caught the pitcher. I'd like to look into that. I wasn't able to this time, but it seems like it's real because 60,000 plus plate appearances, there's not a lot of random variation in a sample that big and five points of true average which is you know essentially five points of wrc plus or wober or whatever if you're more familiar with those stats it's significant in that sort of sample so not enormous but something which i sort of surprised me because again i talked to the catchers about this and they actually differed so Both Flowers and Baker have been much better against guys that they had previously faced, but only one of them thought that he had. So Flowers thought that he would do worse in these situations because he was thinking, I'm overthinking it in these cases. So usually I'm looking fastball and I'm adjusting to the breaking ball, and in this case I'm overthinking it i'm thinking okay what is he going to throw or what would i call here for him to throw and is he going to throw that that kind of thing whereas baker said he kind of focused more got amped up more in what he thought was a helpful way in these situations like he knows the guy he has some relationship with him so there's more at stake in this matchup i suppose and He was thinking, well, if the catcher's thinking what Flowers is thinking, maybe the pitcher is thinking the same thing. So he's getting away from his game plan, too. He's thinking, this catcher knows what I throw, so I have to try to throw something I wouldn't normally throw here, and that will take me away from whatever my best pitch in that situation is. So that's what they told me. That's what the stats say. I was sort of surprised, but it seems to be real. Game theory is so confusing. There's so many (laughs) levels.
1: It just never ends. He's thinking yeah. this, so I'm thinking this, but then he thinks I'm thinking this, so then I'm gonna throw this. <laughs> I guess yeah. the the result, even though I know it's a slight result and it doesn't mean that much, I guess it's it's kind of intuitive if you think along the lines of, Okay, this these catchers who have worked with pitchers do know what their repertoires are, assuming they haven't like added a cutter and he right. knows how he likes to put hitters away. And we've seen time and time again, pitchers will say, I going to I'm gonna pitch to my strengths. I'm not gonna yeah. change the way I pitch because of who the opponent is and I'm sure pitchers know that they're facing someone who has caught them before. I'm sure it crosses their mind. But at the end of the day, if you're a fastball slider pitcher, then you're going to throw fastballs and sliders. So I get it. Mm-hmm. This, one, this one
0: adds up, and I was wrong. I was wrong to say what I said. Yeah, so was I, or so was I before I looked into it. Yeah, and I used as an example, Tyler Flowers actually has the second highest career OPS ever against Chris Sale, which is 4,000 in three play (laughs) appearances. (laughs) And Tyler Flowers is also the catcher who has caught Chris Sale the most. So there was this day where Flowers, the first time he faced Sale, hit a home run. Then he got hit by a backfoot slider. Then he hit a double to the wall. And he was saying that Flowers used to call a lot of changeups when he was catching Sale, and Flowers said, I would have called lots of change-ups against me, but Sale didn't throw him any change-ups that day. It was just all, I guess, sliders and two-seamers, and maybe that was because Sale's repertoire had changed in the interim anyway, but... I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he was thinking in the back of his head, this is what I used to throw to Flowers, although I think Sale's the type of guy who tends to just throw whatever his catcher puts down. So kind of interesting. Shout
1: out to Rob McEwen here for what sounds like really
0: uncomfortable, difficult, tedious research. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rob McEwen. for people who don't know, I mean, he writes at Baseball Perspectives, but he's largely behind the scenes. And I feel like half the baseball research that's been done <laughs> over the past decade, certainly half of mine, has been powered by Rob McEwen and his amazing sequel skills. He is just an incredible resource. So thank you to him. The last one that I checked was actually a theory that Tyler Flowers proposed, which is that catching a knuckleball Makes you worse at hitting And this is something that Flowers Noticed in his own performance Last year so he was catching Ari Dickey And he noticed that he just Didn't hit as well on the days that he was Catching Ari Dickey and He had heard this previously from Russell Martin. Russell Martin went to the same college as Tyler Flowers so they're friendly and Martin had told him how he'd struggled offensively when he was catching Ari Dickey back in 2015 and you get beat up catching the knuckler and it's stressful because you're using all this focus you know you're tracking the pitch as it's going and you don't know where it's going to go and it's just much harder than when you're catching a, a typical pitcher. So The numbers checked out in their case, Flowers was worse with Ari Dickey last year than he was when he was catching other pitchers, and Martin was worse also in 2015. But again, with Rob's help, I went back all the way to the 50s and picked out like 17 knuckleballers who threw the pitch primarily and compared their catchers and what they did when they were catching those guys and catching other guys. Same sort of process, same sort of stats, and... I looked for an effect. What do you think this time?
1: No. Well, yes, small sample, that's right. but no.
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right this time. No. And the sample is smaller, but it's not that small. It's like 14,500 plate appearances catching knuckleballers, which is something. And in this case, actually, the catchers did a little bit better when they were catching knuckleballers, which might just be randomness or Who knows? Maybe there's something else to it. Baker actually told me because he caught Steve Sparks, a knuckleballer, in 2005 in AAA. And Baker said that when he was catching Sparks, he was just so exhausted by that that he didn't even care about his at-bats anymore. And he said, (laughs) maybe it's better not to care about your at-bats. Maybe it's better than caring too much, I guess. So that was one theory. Or I don't know. Maybe it's just randomness. Maybe it's wanting to make up for the impact embarrassing pass ball you allowed in the previous half inning. But it was uh, just a difference of like four points or something over a, a smaller sample. But basically, there's no evidence that the initial theory that you're worse with knuckleballers is true. So And there's also a a theory about the knuckleball hangover effect on hitters after you face a knuckleball pitcher, and there's been some conflicting research on that. I remember looking into that years ago at Baseball Prospectus, and I couldn't find any evidence that that was actually true. But that theory persists that maybe a day after you face a knuckleballer, you'd be worse. But thus far, I have failed to find those effects
1: and it's the same in game where if a knuckleballer comes in like the uh, the Dickie effect right, yeah. and then somebody else comes in afterward i don't know it's complicated but i have a confession and i think it was the ringer that tweeted out two truths and a lie about yeah. your article and so as soon as i figured out the first two quiz answers i knew <laughs> the third
0: uh, yeah that's pretty smart well, now you can unbookmark the article, I guess. <laughs> I don't know I've spoiled it, but I wanted to talk about it because all of these things are questions, at least aside from the flowers theory. These are all questions that I've gotten from listeners over the years. Anyway, if you want to see the numbers, you want to see the quotes, some of the explanations, I will link to the article and you can all explore that. But I had to report my findings. A question that we have gotten—I mean, I've only been on the podcast
1: for— I will have completed about 15 months, mm-hmm. but a question that we, and I'm sure you have gotten more often and for longer, has been the morbid question about what happens if an entire baseball team dies. And yes. So Mark Topkin uh, at the Tampa Bay Times recently wrote an article that he titled 20 Years of Covering the Rays, The Good, The Bad, and Vince Namoli. And there are a few uh, fun little things in here. Uh, Vince Namoli was the original owner, I believe, of the uh, of the then Devil Rays. Mm-hmm. And there are a few things in here. There's a fun little story about uh, how, quote, Namoli didn't like to waste time or money, so there wasn't much anyone could do when he plus his wife, her twin sister, and others would take the team bus after games in New York and have a detour to his apartment on the way back to the team hotel. That's fun and annoying, but anyway, that doesn't address what I brought this up for. Contained within the same article is a, uh, a small paragraph with a header, Not-So-Friendly-Skies, and I will read, As much flying as a Florida-based team does, there are going to be some rough flights. One of the closest calls came on a July 2000 trip into Kansas City when they had to abort the landing due to violent wind shear, then circle back later, leaving even the flight attendants shaken. The pilot said later they were fortunate to have been unexpectedly in a Delta 757 that with their usual 727, it might not have gone as well. I'm not going to guess at what the pilot means by the last part. But I don't think that I need to wager a guess. I think that the plane would have crashed and people yes. would have died, as people do so too. when planes crash. So, obviously, wonderful that the Devil Rays did not go extinct within three years of their inaugural game. But I don't know how many other scares baseball has had. I think this counts as a legitimate scare, right? You're lucky yeah. to be in this airplane? Yeah. Yes. That's legitimate. Sure. Almost lost the Devil Rays.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't. We have a raised team to preview later, and we do discuss the Devil Race, but that does not come up. I'm glad that didn't happen. God, it was yeah. only a close call. Me too. I'm glad <laughs>
1: that a bunch of people didn't die, senselessly. So you yeah. said, uh, I know, I guess we have a segment to get to, but you did. Yeah. Uh, you did foreshadow that you wrote a I second did. article that'll come out Tuesday. I guess we can talk about that in the next podcast or now.
0: I don't know. It's up to you. Yeah, well, I won't spoil this entire one. Maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll make people actually <laughs> click on it. That seems like good business, but... Basically, MLB The Show 18, the new installment of the long-running baseball video game series, is out today, Tuesday. And I've written about it before, done interviews about it before, did one on the Ringer MLB show last year. This year, I got interested in how they model changes in the actual game of baseball because we've spent so much time talking about home run rates and strikeout rates and why these things are happening and is the ball behaving differently or is it hitter swings. And MLB The Show tries to be as realistic as possible and tries to model the previous season of baseball. So they're constantly tweaking and adjusting how the game plays to make it more lifelike and to make it closer to the stats and performance of the previous season. So I got really curious about this because we've been puzzling for years now about how much of it is the ball, and how much of it is swings, and these are sort of decisions that the people who make the show have to make, more or less, because they have to tweak the physics in the game, and they have to decide how to tweak the physics in the game, so I thought they would have an interesting perspective on this, and they did, and the guy who's been doing the physics for the show has been doing it since like 2004, before it was even called the show, so he basically built that from the ground up, and probably knows about as much as anyone in the world about baseball and ball and bat collisions and physics aside from maybe Alan Nathan. So we were talking about that and it turns out that yes, the ball is juiced in MLB The Show 18. And I guess I won't spoil all the details of how they decide how to do that and what they adjust in order to make the ball fly farther or make the batters swing differently. There are many factors that go into it, but I will link to it, and that was pretty fascinating to me. That's uh, a virtual recreation of the game that we're always trying to figure out in real life.
1: I was just trying to look up the uh, the spring training home run rate. I have this takes too long to do just uh, on the fly. But let me just tell you this: that, I it's, think very soon, yeah, it's up. It's, uh, it's up. <laughs> last I checked, it was up. It continues to be up. There are going to yeah. be more home runs. It's going to be more of oh, everything yeah. that there already
0: was more of last year. Yes, indeed. I think we'll probably talk about that more at length tomorrow, and. Maybe we'll also have a guest who is not previewing a team season tomorrow. We'll be free. We can talk about whatever we want. But is that allowed? Have, I think so, yeah. We can just really explore the podcast space after this. But we will take a quick break now, and we'll be back with Anthony DeComo of MLB.com to talk about the New York Mets.
2: Effectively wild The only
3: podcast that affects our thirst for stats, effectively wild. The only podcast that effectively quenches our
1: thirst for stats.
0: All right, so for our penultimate wild. team preview, we are joined now by Anthony DeComo, who covers the Mets for MLB.com. We welcome. Penultimate, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, so are we. So the Mets, I guess they have survived the spring nearly unscathed. Spring is really a a war of attrition, and every team is just trying to get to the end without losing anyone who is going to totally sabotage their season. We've seen the Giants lose Madison Bumgarner in the closing days. We've seen the Yankees lose Greg Bird. and. The Mets, I guess as bad as it gets, you've got Jason Vargas with the fractured non-pitching hand, you've got Rafael Montero who is having Tommy John surgery, and of course you have the continued injury issues of David Wright and Michael Conforto not quite back, but all in all, has to be considered a success, right? The Mets actually have an entire intact starting rotation right now with the pitchers that they would want to have in that rotation. That seems like a great victory.
2: It, it is a great victory. And I think the, the word you used, survived, is, is a perfect one because that was the story of spring. It will continue to be a story into the summer, throughout the summer. And frankly, it will be continue to be a story... Until it's not. Until the Mets prove that uh, all of these injury issues that have plagued them in years past are truly by and gone. Um, you know that was what the Mets said about to do this winter. They hired a new training staff. They hired a new strength and conditioning staff. They hired a new manager who is very in tune. With these sorts of things and said all the right things in the interview in terms of injury prevention and, and what they can do specifically on the pitching side but we gotta see it we gotta see it so spring was the first step and yes they they escaped mostly intact uh jason vargas's injury while well, it's a broken bone it's, it's to his glove hand it, it's essentially a minor thing he'll miss a start maybe two rafael montero wasn't a big part of the mets plans michael conforto is actually ahead of schedule in his rehab from shoulder surgery. So all, all, all pretty good signs for the Mets, and we'll continue to monitor it because this is uh, a very, very talented team, I would say, it just in terms of talent alone, uh, top five in the National League, uh, but can they stay on the field? Can they actually translate that into man hours and games played and ultimately wins
0: uh, ask me again in june and i'll have a better answer for you we might ask you at the end of this episode just because <laughs> we always do but yeah <laughs> i ran a little uh, polling project on
1: fan graphs which i do every single spring just to see where fans are with regard to the team projections and i was a little surprised to see that at least right now the fans think that the mets are worse than their Modestly good projection of about eighty-four wins. I was expecting optimism to take over with all this pitcher health, but in any case, very clearly the key to the Mets is going to be Noah Syndergaard. Syndergaard missed so much time last season with the uh with the torn lat, which is better than an elbow problem or a shoulder problem, but still it's a major problem. So, long story short, is there anything right now that seems to be holding Noah Syndergaard back in spring training, or does he just look like he's one hundred five percent like he used to be before getting hurt?
2: Well, he looks like he's one hundred and five percent. The only little worry the Mets would have right now is he actually has a split nail on his middle finger of his throwing hand, which is usually a minor thing can seem like a minor thing. He's got plenty of time to uh, lacquer it up and file it down and whatever they do. Um, And these types of things are are a minor thing until they're not. So right now it's not really affecting him. He has looked plenty sharp. And again, like so many of these pitchers, we will see Uh, on the surface. Syndergaard is is a guy that you worry about the least of that group of Matt Harvey and Stephen Matz and, and Zach Wheeler and, and all these guys who have had injury things in previous years. And I, I say you worry about him the least because he had a muscle tear. It's a different type of thing. He didn't have shoulder surgery or elbow surgery or something that you have to continue to monitor months and even years down the road. He had a soft muscle tissue ish injury, which is healed. And as long as that's the case, there's no reason why he can't be Know a Syndergaard, but I think the one thing you always have to keep in the back of your mind, it's a thing that was a story last spring before Syndergaard ever got hurt, and that is a guy who throws 101, throws triple digits with regularity, does all of these things. You have to always wonder like, is he going to snap? Is he just going to break one day? And it's entirely possible, but all you can do if you're the Mets is hope that he doesn't and, and do you know, everything for Noah Syndergaard within his power to keep him healthy. I wrote a story last week about his off-season workouts and, and he worked with Eric Cressy, a moderately famous trainer, kind of redid everything about his workouts. He still lifts all this weight, but he's also focusing on flexibility and mobility. And you can either look at that as, okay, this is a guy who's starting to understand his body a little better and, you know, this will help him stay healthy in the long run. Or you can look at it from the cynics view, which is, all right, we, we get these best shape of their life stories every single spring. So I get it. And But I will say for the Mets to, to go where they want to go this summer, there is no more critical player than Syndergaard. If he gives them 200 innings, they're probably going to be in playoff contention. I truly believe that. And if he doesn't, if he has something come up like last year where he misses four or five months of the season, I, I don't really see a way where they can be. So uh, the pendulum swings with Noah Syndergaard in that regard.
0: Yeah, and the really insidious thing about injuries is that after a certain point, the concern becomes not only will you be healthy, but will you still be good if you're healthy? And that's not the question with Cindergard yet at this point. I think it's either is he on the field or is he not? It's not is he going to be good when he is on the field. But with a few of the other starters you've alluded to here, Harvey, Matts, Wheeler, they're kind of in the category where you wonder if the injuries have significantly lowered their ceiling and what even should be the expectation for them if they are on the field. So have they been significantly diminished or I guess who has been the most diminished or what should fans expect realistically from these guys even absent injuries?
2: Well, we've seen it already from Zach Wheeler who the Mets just demoted to the minor leagues, which I think was by the time it happened, probably not a shock to to many people, but certainly jarring in the fact that this is a guy who you always assumed, if he's healthy, he's a big leaguer. He can help this team. Well, he was healthy this spring, and he wasn't able to do enough to make the team because he wasn't pitching well. He was healthy at the start of last season and he put up a five plus ERA. So he wasn't helping the team. And really it's been four years now since Zach Wheeler was a good, healthy pitcher. And I think he, he falls squarely into what you were just talking about, which is, can he ever be good again? We'll find out the Mets don't think he's one of their five best pitchers right now, or really they don't think he's one of their 12 best pitchers right now because they didn't want him in the bullpen either. They want him down at AAA pitching every five days, trying to find whatever it is that he needs to find, whether that's an, an arm slot or a mechanical tweak to get better because health right now isn't the issue for him. And, and, you know, if there was any indication that he could help the Mets, he would be up here right now. As for the others, you know, I'll start with Steven Matz because that's an easier one. And I, I don't think people are ever going to believe that Stephen Matz is going to be healthy long-term. I think he's just got to go out and do it. Um, There's always going to be cynicism, skepticism about his ability to stay healthy because he never has. He literally has never had a full healthy season since the day he was drafted. So this spring, he has looked by and large great. Uh, He had two awful, awful starts at the very beginning of spring training. And since then he had a sub two ERA and I don't buy that much into ERAs in spring. They're, they're typically small sample sizes and all of that, but he looked good doing it. He was striking out a lot of guys. He was commanding the zone. He wasn't walking a ton of batters. He was throwing 95 with regularity from the left side. So all the ingredients are there for him to have a bounce back. It's just a matter of, again, I feel like I'm going to say this with every question you (laughs) you ask me, but can he stay healthy now? Matt Harvey is the total wild card of the situation. I really have no idea. He he looked pretty good this spring. Uh, At times, he didn't look great. At times, he looked really good. He was throwing 95, 96, 97. Uh, But we saw that down the stretch last year, too, um, when he was getting absolutely rocked on a weekly basis. So how it translates once he's facing major league lineups and not these grapefruit league mishmashes of minor leaguers and what have you Um, Again, we'll find out. The good thing for the Mets on the Matt Harvey front is they don't need him to be an ace. They don't even need him really to be a number three. They just need him to give them six innings every five games. If he can do that, they'll be okay with it. Because I don't think anyone really believes he's as bad as he was down the stretch last season. It's hard to have the stuff that he has and the pitching pedigree that he has and throw up a Six plus ERA over a significant portion of time. I, I think realistically, you're probably looking at a classic mid to back end of the rotation starter. Uh, you know, a guy who can theoretically go out there and maybe and win ten games for you. And if Matt Harvey can can do that, I think the Mets would be absolutely thrilled with it. It comes down to health, of course, like with these other guys. But I think there's almost less doubt regarding Harvey that he can stay healthy or, or maybe it, it's just a strange situation with him and it, it's hard to kind of put it into words because he came from such a high place and he went to such a low place and it's like what is the real thing going forward? Yeah. Is he going to get back to a point where he's you know, battling for all-star nominations or is his career going to be over in a year? It could be anything and most likely it'll be somewhere in between those extremes but he has been a picture of extremes throughout his career, so we shall see.
1: This was an off season in which pretty productive first baseman went for cheap. Yonder Alonso signed a modest deal with the Indians, and Logan Morrison signed a even more modest deal with the twins, and Lucas Duda signed a still more there's lots of levels of modesty here. Lucas D signed a very modest deal with the Royals and the Mets came out of this offseason with a new Adrian Gonzalez, which ten years ago would have been great. Five years ago would have been great. But Gonzalez is coming off a season where he was not very good. He has his own injury problems. There's a theme here. You might have noticed talking about the Mets, but Gonzalez's injuries were somebody else's problem until now. So Adrian Gonzalez has come into camp. He hadn't really hit yet. Of course, the Mets do have the prospect in Dominic Smith, who came into camp healthy and almost immediately got injured. So how long do you give Adrian Gonzalez? And I guess related to that, what is the organizational level of faith in Smith given that they haven't really been able to see him this spring but at least he did report in better shape
2: yeah he reported in better shape but it has just been a miserable spring for Dominic Smith I mean he showed up late to his first game when he was supposed to be in the lineup they took him out of the lineup to send a message as a result of that the next day he's back in there and lasts about four innings before he has this quad injury which he never recovered from he's still rehabbing it now as we, as we record this thing, the final week of March, he'll be in extended spring training. He'll ultimately go to AAA and he's going to have to earn his way back. Certainly that is not what the Mets envisioned when they signed Adrian Gonzalez, because they saw this guy as a stopgap, as a, maybe they get lucky and he plays the whole season and is productive, but more likely, you know, he gives them April and May and then Dominic Smith is truly ready and he comes back up i think there's a skepticism now that that can happen just because smith hasn't played he hasn't showed them anything so how could he show them something good when you look at the mets roster to me i think one of the best things about it is that there's not an obvious weakness their bullpen is definitely better than it was this time a year ago it's not the greatest bullpen in the league but it could play uh the rotation obviously has huge potential uh we'll see about the injuries but you know if even some of those guys are healthy it should be okay it should certainly be better than last year Um, the lineup isn't going to blow you away but it's pretty solid one through eight the team defense is better than it was again not going to blow you away but certainly an improvement so there's no real weakness and i think if you want to point out one flaw it could definitely be that first base situation because if adrian gonzalez isn't good and he's going to be 36 years old and he didn't hit it all this spring your backup plan dominic smith again, hasn't shown you anything right now. Your other backup plan, Wilmer Flores, is probably needed at multiple positions and really with the exception of of last year, hasn't shown a lot throughout his career against right-handed pitching. So uh, the Mets have long thought that he's not really an everyday option. So that could be a weakness. And yeah, I think if they had seen this market coming, which really nobody did, uh, if they had known that they could get Lucas Duda back on such a small deal, they probably would have done something like that. Uh, the good thing is that it's probably easier to find first base depth out there if they need to go hunting midseason than it is at any other position. But yeah, it would be probably my number one area, area of concern for the Mets right now is that first base position. It has the potential to be not very good over the course of this season.
0: One of the criticisms you could make about the Mets in recent years is it seems like they've played a lot of guys out of position, maybe not put them in the best position to succeed or to contribute as well as they could on defense. They've blocked some guys, moved guys to positions where they hadn't played a whole lot in the past. And this was a weird offseason, certainly. And you can compare contracts given to free agents and say, how did this guy get that? But that guy got that. You could even play that game with Mets free agent signings, maybe with Jay Bruce and Todd Frazier, who went for dramatically different amounts and don't seem to be dramatically different (laughs) values as players. But Bruce, I think, was kind of confusing in that the Mets had Brandon Nimmo really sort of establish himself last year. He is, I suppose, penciled in for center right now, but then you've got Conforto coming back. Neither of these guys, none of these guys is really a true center fielder. And maybe you're looking at a situation where Nimmo gets forced out of playing time a little bit. You've also got some of these guys, I guess, who can take some time at first base if that's necessary. But how do all these pieces fit together ultimately? And was it sort of a strange distribution of resources to bring back Bruce? Or does he offer something that isn't immediately apparent?
2: I wouldn't say it's
0: strange
2: only because Jay Bruce is such a such the type of player that this front office loves and i remember when the mets acquired him the first time you know on fangraph there was a, a story I, it's flipping my mind who wrote it I, but it was uh it was titled "Jay bruce somehow makes the mets more mets and it's <laughs> so true because he is this guy who's going to hit 240 and he's going to hit 30 plus homers and that's exactly the type of guy that sandy alderson has always gone after has always felt like can give you value beyond what the money is now Jay Bruce, to his credit, was was pretty smart and pretty savvy this winter. Um, you know, getting that thirty-six million dollar deal. I think he realized early on, whereas a lot of free agents didn't, that he wasn't going to get paid the way that he thought he was. He wasn't going to get that sixty-plus million dollar deal that he might have initially thought he was. So he took what he can get, and that was a pretty good deal from the Mets be here three years, a place that he knows, a place that he at least feels comfortable in. So in a way, on the surface, I understand what you're saying, where it's not necessarily the snuggest fit, uh, but it is a player that the Mets like. And you look at their outfield situation as a whole, I, I don't think they would have done a deal like this if Michael Conforto hadn't surprised them last year with how well he did in center field. You know, when Conforto was drafted, he was kind of looked upon as a one of those guys that he's really going to have to hit because defensively, you don't know. He had kind of one of those bodies that you think it's not going to age that well. He'll be stuck as a lead-footed corner outfielder. But really, he hasn't been that at all. He's been pretty good defensively. He's, he's more than held his own in center field. He's certainly not elite out there, but they don't need him to be elite because he can be an elite hitter. So they're okay with the idea of Michael Conforto playing the next three years in center field. Certainly, you want Cespedes has had his injury histories. If he goes on the shelf, you can move Conforto, you can start Brandon Nimmo or even Juan Lagares in center field. So by and large, I think the Mets feel pretty good about their outfield mix. You heard some rumblings this winter about might they try and trade Juan Lagares. I really don't see that as a fit. I think the money that Lagares is owed over the next two seasons, you're not going to get a lot of value back for him. And in that way, he's more valuable to you right now than he is to any other team out there. And frankly, beyond those top five guys, the Mets have very, very little outfield-wise in the organization. It's Cespedes, it's Bruce, it's Conforto, it's Brendan Nimmo, who looked really good this spring and really good down the stretch last year. And it is Juan Lagares. And then once you get past that, you're really kind of dipping into A-ball for maybe the next guy who might have an impact. So I think the Mets are what they are in the outfield at this point. If to Cespedes stays healthy and has an MVP caliber season, they're going to be pretty good out there. Michael Conforto showed that he sure looks all the way back from that shoulder surgery. He's going to be back at some point in April and, and probably going to pick off right where he left off. So between those three guys, I, I think the way I would put it is you could do a lot worse for your outfield than what the Mets have right now, and, and especially where the, in the place where they came from really just four, five years ago, back in 2014, 2013, when they had one of the worst outfields I've ever seen. Uh, it, it's a pretty decent spot outfield-wise for them to be.
1: Handy rule of thumb for any players that when you are in the major leagues and playing fairly often and you're only 20 or 21 years old, that's a great sign for your career. Obviously, you have to be very good, very talented to accelerate that quickly. But, you know, when Ahmed Rosario came up to the Mets last season in his age 21 season, he was bad. He he did not get on base. He did not hit for power. He had the lowest walk rate of anyone who batted 150 times. He had one of the highest swing rates that pitches out of the zone. Those two go hand in hand. And he struck out a bunch. So Rosario, obviously, the door is not by any means closed on him, but he had what I can only describe as, I don't know, like a, a Tim Anderson-y kind of debut. He looked like a, a similar sort of player where he's got speed and he didn't show a whole lot of other skills at the big league level. So has he, has he looked more put together this spring? Was it was it just a matter of his being overwhelmed by how quickly he got up to the majors? Or, or is there a little concern that maybe his his plate approach might not sustain a quality bet?
2: Yeah, I don't think he was, he was overwhelmed. He seems like a pretty mature kid in my estimation. He seems like he's taken to big league life. He's a pretty professional guy. I think it was a matter either, yeah, of that plate approach just isn't quite there yet, or maybe just he's not quite ready yet. And I think people forget that He is only 22 years old. Uh, He hasn't had a ton of experience at the upper levels. So uh, it's not shocking to me that he did what he did down the stretch. Because of that, I think throughout spring training this year, he was kind of the forgotten man. Uh, You didn't hear a lot of talk about Ahmed Rosario, whereas usually – You've got this hotshot, 22-year-old prospect, this guy who's been ranked so highly for so many years now, um, who plays shortstop, who plays a premier defensive position, can be a premier defender, has all of these tools that make you raise your eyebrows and say, wow, like this guy could be a multi-time all-star, the bedrock of a winning team. We heard almost nothing about, about uh, Ahmed Rosario this spring. So he has the potential to be kind of one of those post-hype sleeper guys because of it, a guy who is not necessarily central what this Mets team is doing, but if he's good, he could become central pretty quickly. I mean, he's going to be batting eighth to start the year, maybe even ninth if the Mets decide to put their pitcher eighth. We'll see. They would love for him to bat leadoff at some point, but he's going to have to show much more on-base potential before they go that route. He didn't do it this spring. He walked once the entire spring. Despite having a very good spring, he showed power. Um, He showed that good defense, but he is, like you said, going to have to alter that approach and it's something that the Mets drill into all their hitters like so many teams out there um, they're all about taking pitches and swinging at good ones and and waiting for years and not chasing and I mean it's elementary every team does it uh, but the Mets have done it longer than most they have been more militant about it I would say than most and and by and large have acquired hitters that already fall into line with that Uh, Ahmad Rosario is one of the few exceptions here so he's going to have to do it and you always worry with guys like that. If you take away their aggressiveness, how do they respond? Obviously, Ahmed Rosario didn't respond great in his first cup of tea at the big leagues. But let's give him a couple more months under his belt before we proclaim whether he's you know going to be the next superstar or the next bust, and uh, we'll see. I, you know, you talk about guys who are 22 coming to the big leagues, 21 coming to the big leagues as Rosario was. Is that good for them? Is that bad for them? I, I never buy into the argument that if a guy comes up at 21 and falls flat on his face, you can ruin him because frankly, if that's all it takes to ruin a guy is a couple of bad months in the big leagues, then he probably wasn't mentally strong enough to succeed in the first place. Uh, I don't think Rosario is that type of guy. But so we'll see what kind of physical adjustments he makes at the plate going forward.
0: One of the younger guys you're alluding to who does take a walk and has a solid approach is Kevin Plewecki, who's sort of a post type prospect, I suppose, and he put some things together at the big league level really for the first time last year and He's in a backup role, but with Travis Darnot as the starter, he's obviously a guy who has missed time with injuries himself in the past, so you never know when Ploiecki will get more of a shot. What is the perception of him these days? Is he just kind of good for a backup catcher, or is he a potential starter-type talent?
2: You know, Kevin Ploiecki has had so many opportunities throughout his career to take this catching job and seize it, and so he has by and large fallen flat on his face Travis Darno has had so many injuries when he's been healthy he hasn't been nearly the hitter the Mets thought he could be but for the first time down the stretch last year uh, you saw Kevin Fluecky really kind of thrive in the big leagues and yeah. it was about five weeks he was playing half the time Darno was playing half the time both of those guys did really really well and the Mets liked it enough that they said hey maybe this is something that could work you know we see with the but the Red Sox and the Indians and other teams are doing at the catching position around the league. It's really not a position that you can point to one guy in on every team and say this is our catcher. Uh, it's it's kind of getting to the point where it's almost like uh, you know what we saw with running backs in football in the 2000s, where all of a sudden you didn't have this one guy who was rushing for 2,000 yards every year. You were giving the the load to two guys or three guys or or even more than that. So I think catching has become the same thing in baseball. You need more than one who you can call, you know, 1A and 1B, so to speak. And that's very much the case with the Mets. And even more than that, I would say, Mickey Calloway has kind of said this spring that they're going to match up these guys not based on who's pitching for the Mets. It's not going to be like Kevin Ploiecki is Noah Syndergaard's personal catcher, but they're going to do it based on who's pitching for the other team. Uh, now, obviously, both guys, both of them are righties, so you can't do a traditional platoon, but the Mets really like what Kevin Puecki does against right-handed pitching. They think, uh, especially guys with big breaking balls, he, he can handle them. They like Darnell against lefties, certainly. But for Puecki, he has a chance here that if he hits, he can kind of turn this into a platoon where he's starting against most right-handed pitchers. And if that's the case, he's going to get a lot more playing time than Travis Darno. which if you had told me that a year ago, I would have laughed at you because I, you know, No disrespect to Kevin Ploiecki, but he just hadn't taken advantage of his myriad opportunities at the big league level. This is his biggest chance yet. I do believe he's going to start on opening day. and I think he's going to start a lot the first month of the season. And if he hits, he will continue to play and even have a chance to take more and more playing time away from Travis Darnell.
1: I don't like how often players get compared against the best players in baseball. I think that it uh, diminishes the amount of work and talent that it takes to be one of the best players in baseball, but I can't tell you how many different plate discipline metrics I've looked at that seem to very strongly want to compare Joey Votto and Brandon Nimmo. So there there is a lot more to Joey Votto than just his discipline, but clearly his eye is the foundation for him being who he is and Nimmo just seems to have that kind of uh, discerning ability to be able to tell what's a pitch to swing at and what's a pitch that isn't a pitch to swing at. So how how much further along does I don't know what what's even the problem here Brandon Nimmo's bat control but uh, what what is the difference between Brandon Nimmo today and All-Star Brandon Nimmo? Let's put it like that. That's the question. That's uh, the
2: right there. Yeah, no, I think it's a good question and I think there's, there's an obvious answer to me which is, it sounds counterintuitive, but he needs to scale back the discipline. And and I think you're starting to see it. I think he was almost too patient in the past. uh, In the minor leagues, he was letting too many good pitches go by. And now, especially this spring, I I really noticed Brandon Nimmo swinging at pitches earlier in the count, swinging at a first pitch if he liked it. He showed some power on first pitches of at bats, things like that. So, if all of a sudden you turn into this hitter who not only has this great eye and won't even, uh, you know, won't even offer at a pitch in the dirt or a pitch up high or any of that stuff out of the zone, but also is able to attack and turn on and crush your mistakes, then that is when you become this all-star level talent. It's been a long time coming for Brandon Nimmo. He was kind of, if you remember, when Sandy Alderson was first named GM and, and he brought on Paul Podesta as his assistant who kind of ran the draft, uh, this was their pet project. This was kind of a wow pick. He was someone who wasn't on many teams' radar. The Mets took him in the first round, and there was a little kind of snickering behind their backs by scouts and a lot of people in the baseball community who kind of looked at this pick and said, Okay, this you know, 18-year-old out of Wyoming who hasn't played all that much organized baseball, he's got a good batting eye, but what else does he have? Well, it, it turns out he's got some tools. Uh, over the years, he filled out his body. He became a lot stronger. He continued to have that great eye. And, and like I said, now, really in the past year, I would say, he's becoming better and better at being aggressive on mistakes. And, and I think that's, you know, you hear it all the time, but that's kind of the Moneyball fallacy is that they just, you know, these teams that follow this philosophy just want to take walks and get on base and that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's just not true. They want you to swing at good pitches. They want you to attack mistakes. And not swinging anything out of the zone. So if Brandon Nimmo can become that type of hitter and, you know, maybe add a little bit more power, maybe show that he can hold down center field defensively, at least as well as Michael Conforto, maybe better than Michael Conforto can. Yeah, he's got a chance to develop into a very nice player. I don't know if he can be a star. I don't know if he can be a centerpiece to your lineup. But if that's a guy that you have leading off on a nightly basis that you could do a lot worse, certainly, than what Brendan Nimmo has shown over the past year.
0: I know it's early, but what has stood out to you about the transition from the older school and older Terry Collins to the newer school and younger Mickey Calloway? What should Mets fans expect differently from a tactical perspective, from a people management perspective, maybe from a pulling pitchers or risking pitchers perspective? What's the big difference?
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, in general, we, we... certainly fans and even us in the media, we don't necessarily see what guys offer in terms of it in the clubhouse type of thing. You see how guys interact with the media and that sort of thing. And both Terry Collins and Mickey Calloway, I would say are good at that. I don't think, you know, I think Terry Collins is pretty good in the clubhouse. I think Mickey Calloway will be pretty good in the clubhouse, but tactically I do think it's going to be night and day. Yeah. You're, you're not going to see bunting anymore. You know, you're going to see maybe some interesting lineups, some lineups that a lot of fans would consider unorthodox. Uh, you know, the Mets kicked around the idea, for example, of Todd Frazier batting laid off. Now that's not going to happen, at least not right away, but these are the types of things that I think many fans will see and, and raise their eyebrows about. I think the biggest difference is going to be on the pitching side. Uh, the Mets have talked openly about kind of limiting their starters and and, and the big guys, Jacob DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard, they'll, they'll more or less be exceptions to this. But as for the others, uh, Stephen Matz and Matt Harvey, and, and certainly a guy like Seth Lugo, who's going to be in the rotation to break camp. Uh, Robert Gesselman will certainly get starts at some point along the way. Um, they're not going to let these guys really face lineups the third time through. They are going to be five, six innings, whatever it is, to, to get through a lineup twice, and, and then you're out of there. And they're going to take advantage of the fact that they have what they think is a pretty deep bullpen. They have a bullpen that has, some interesting moving parts. Uh, they acquired a lot of kind of high upside, hard-throwing relievers last year when they sold off Jay Bruce and Edison Reed and Lucas Duda and all those guys. So the parts that they brought in, Jacob Raim, who will make the team um, for opening day, uh, Drew Smith, Jamie Callahan, and, and you know the list goes on. They're about 5 or 6 deep with those types of guys. They're going to come up and down. They're going to shuttle up and down from Vegas many, many times, uh, much as the Yankees have employed successfully much as the Dodgers have employed successfully and in that way they feel that they can shorten up their starting pitchers and all of a sudden you bring in someone who's throwing 95-96 in the sixth inning and you can do that most nights without having to worry about burning out your bullpen because instead of being seven deep in the bullpen you're 11 deep with with pitchers who are roughly the same quality uh the Mets don't necessarily have as much back-end strength, I would say, as some other teams do. But if you can go 11 deep with guys who are pretty good, uh, they'll take that. So you're going to see a lot of that. You're going to see a lot of guys, starters coming out of games earlier. I don't think you're going to see anyone on the Mets, even if they're having a great year. You're, you're going to see anyone pitch 225, 230 innings. Uh, I think they'll probably limit guys. And kind of like what the Nationals have done with Max Scherzer the past couple of years, You know, maybe the, the ceiling for these guys is 205 innings, something like that. Um, And that's one of the biggest things you talked about before about uh, health and conditioning and that sort of thing. That's one of the biggest ways that the Mets field, they're going to keep these guys healthy is just by limiting the overall workload and, Doing kind of common sense things to keep them on the field and keep them healthy.
1: Looking at the the Mets' all-time franchise baseball reference page, of course, the highest career wins above replacement mark for any Met is Tom Seaver, 79. But the guy in second place is David Wright at 50.4 wins above replacement. And I can just tell you, looking at David Wright's Roto World page, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, but it's a little recent news section. and I can read you the last four headlines from November Mets activate David Wright from 60-day DL. It's it's only getting darker. Mets activate David Wright from 60-day DL. Then in January, David Wright is not ready to retire yet. February, Mets have ability to use 60-day DL for Wright. And a few weeks ago, Wright, parentheses, back, shoulder, shut down for eight weeks. So David Wright is, uh, of course, one of the greatest Mets of all time. Certainly the greatest of his generation. And he's got three more years under contract. He... He insists he wants to continue playing. Clearly, he's very important to the team, at least on an emotional level. And the Mets do have an insurance policy that I believe covers something like 75% of what is remaining on his contract. But I guess the long and short of it is where do things go from here? David Wright hasn't played since May of 2016. Feels like it's unlikely he'll be able to do anything else the rest of the way. But I don't know. Do you do you see anything that maybe offers a little more optimism and light from where you are because i don't see a whole lot from where i sit
2: no i I really don't and and the only thing you can say is that if if anyone in this situation can make it back it it will be david wright he is so incredibly committed to it he wants so badly to come back he is you know such a hard worker and and all these platitudes that you can say about him they're all true i mean he, he is one of the good guys in the game he's one of the hardest workers in the game everyone really does root for him and want him to come back. But realistically, it's going to be very tough. And and even if he does, you know, somehow make it back for a nice moment at City Field where he plays in a game and he takes in at bat, and, and, you know, the crowd shows him all this love, uh, you know, he's not going to be that everyday type of player ever again. Uh, I I just don't see a path to it. Uh, He's not going to really probably even be a significant contributor off the bench ever again. Uh, You're talking about a guy And we forget because you get buried in this onslaught of shoulder surgery and back surgery and neck surgery and missing two years and blah, blah, blah. But you look up and he's 35 years old and hasn't played in the big leagues in in over two years. So uh, to think someone can just come back from that and be productive, even if they were 100% healthy, is a very tall task. And now you add on the injuries on top of it. You add on the fact that even if he can come back from this stuff, He's still got spinal stenosis, which is a degenerative condition, and will have it not just for the rest of his career, but for the rest of his life. Yeah, very, very difficult to see a scenario in which that happens. But he is trying. It's his, certainly his right to try. You know, he's earned that big contract, 138 million dollars, of which he still got about, I want to say, about 45, 50 million left. And, and frankly, you know, from a competitive standpoint, the situation that's unfolding right now is probably the best for both sides. David still gets paid. The Mets are. Collecting insurance on that contract, 75% of it, so they're getting most of that money back. And the front office has kind of moved on. Uh, in years past, they've gone halfway. Uh, they used Wilmer Flores at third base. They signed a Shubal Cabrera and used him at third base. All kind of under the guise of, well, you know, this is a stopgap. But if David comes back, we'll do this. If David comes back, he can play. Now you see them go out and get Todd Frazier on a two year deal. They were looking all off season at shoring up that position. And now it's David Wright's not in the picture. If he comes back, that would be awesome. We'll figure it out when it happens. But for as for right now, we're moving on without him and it's kind of the way they have to operate because like I said, as sad as it may be the prospect of David Wright coming back and and being a productive player really in any aspect is uh, the odds are pretty low.
0: And is there any concern about Conforto or is the expectation that the second he gets back, he's going to just return to the elite level he was at last season?
2: Yeah, he's looked pretty great. Uh, you know, I think the reason why he had the shoulder surgery, he didn't necessarily have to have it. Uh, the reason why he had it was because if he didn't, There was always going to be a risk of continuing to dislocate the shoulder, continuing to have issues. It's an issue that he had in the past and obviously had in a big way last year. But uh, he had the surgery so that that wouldn't be the case. And he certainly looks healthy. You worry about power from an injury like that, but he's been crushing home runs during the games he's played in spring training. So, yeah, as of right now, I don't think the Mets have any reason to be all that worried about Michael Conforto. They they were talking about May 1st, return for him at the beginning of camp, and I think it's going to be weeks earlier than that. At this point, he looks great.
0: All right, so we talked about how much uncertainty there is, how big the error bars can be with the Mets, and we've seen that play out, whether it's going from the World Series to the wildcard game to not making the playoffs and finishing in fourth place. All of those are very reasonable outcomes, but we've made every other guest predict the win total of their team, so we have to do it to you, too. How many games do you envision the Mets winning this season?
2: Let me preface this by saying, You know, as someone who covers the team, I'm always, if anything, I lean toward being pessimistic about their chances. Uh, You know, I I never want to be seen as a homer or anything like that. Last year, I actually thought at this time that they had the potential to be quite bad. And they proved me right. Uh, They were quite bad, uh, injuries and all that stuff. I don't see that this year. I actually think they're going to be pretty good. I think their biggest issue in the past, which has been they haven't given themselves enough depth I feel like they've taken care of. They have depth in the bullpen. They have depth in the rotation. They have a decent amount of depth in the lineup on the bench. Things will go wrong, certainly. Uh, that opening day rotation is going to get hurt. But I think they have enough that they can compete now. And all of that is a long way of saying I, I don't think 87, 88 wins is is all that far off from what they can do. Um, I think they're going to be in contention all summer for a wild card spot. I, I don't think they have enough Top end firepower to get over to get to that 90 win level and start competing with the Nationals. But yeah, I think high 80s, let's call it, hey, let's be optimistic and call it 88, I think uh, is right around where the Mets are going to be. All
0: right. Well, as you just tweeted, the spring training ratings on SNY are evidently way up. (laughs) So I guess people are excited to see the Mets. So that's nice. And if things do go well, if they are ending up or looking like they'll end up in that range, Do you think the team can or will add to the roster, to the payroll? I I know that... There's always just week-to-week, day-to-day uncertainty about what the Mets can or will spend, and I guess they're, what, fifth in the National League right now in payroll. But, you know, they did spend over the winter, at least relative to previous Mets teams, so is there any more room there for them to add, if necessary?
2: I don't I don't think they'll do a lot. I think they spent more than they anticipated spending this winter, guys most Notably, Todd Frazier and, and Jason Vargas became available to them at prices that they liked, whereas they really didn't see that coming at the beginning of the offseason. So um, I, I really don't see them adding a lot now. If they get into a pennant race and they need a reliever, something like that, sure, they could add a, a couple million to do something like that. Um, I think there's enough flexibility. And you know, frankly, despite the bad rap that ownership gets, uh, I think there's you know enough commitment to winning that they would do something like that. But as for making a big splash, as for adding a UN type player, no, I don't think you're going to see that during the course of the summer.
0: All right. Well, you can read Anthony all year long at MLB.com. You can find him on Twitter at his name, Anthony DeComo. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, guys. Anytime. Thank you. All right. So let's take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment with RJ Anderson of CBS Sports to talk about our final team for the 2018 team premium series, Tampa Bay Rays. It's all. It is time for our 30th and final, last but not least, team preview podcast for the 2018 season. And to do it. Talk about the Tampa Bay Rays. We are joined by our friend and former colleague, RJ Anderson, who writes for CBS Sports and co-hosts the DFA podcast at Baseball Prospectus. The Rays did some dfa this winter, too. We'll talk about that. But hello, RJ. How are you doing, Ben and Jeff? We're doing well. We're happy to be at the end of this series, but let's talk about the Rays. Let's go big picture first, I think, because there was a lot of controversy and some disagreement about what the Rays did this offseason, what their plan was. So. How do you see it? If you could do it, break it down from the Ray's perspective or or what you imagine the Ray's perspective is and sort of the general media perspective, if you think there was a consensus, how did those differ? What were the Ray's trying to do and did they succeed? I assume they were trying to repay
3: past life karmic debt because this was a <laughs> brutal offseason optically, you know. The Evan Longoria trade, from a media perspective, I think everyone agrees they kind of got a light return on their franchise player. From a team perspective, I've been told by multiple people that they let Longoria have a say in where he was going, and that they actually took a lesser offer than they could have gotten from a couple of other teams. So if you believe that, you know, kind of give them some kudos for respecting Longoria and respecting his contributions to the franchise. Beyond that, I don't really know how to explain the Corey Dickerson DFA from their perspective, from the media perspective, and from my perspective, that was one of the most puzzling moves of the winner. The Jake Rizzi deal, you know, it's sort of the same thing. They got a light return there. I know they claim they really like Palacios, and of course, with the Dickerson trade, you know, Hudson didn't even make the team, so they must really like Tristan Gray. But, you know, there's a common theme, I guess, throughout their winter from a media perspective, and that was that they really got light returns on the trades they made. Mm-hmm. They seemed intent on saving some money, and if you're looking at it from a front office perspective, i guess they went out there and you know got carlos gomez and acquired some of these waiver wire guys who they think can give them cheap production. I don't know how likely that is, but yeah, it was a pretty bad offseason i think from my perspective and i don't really know that they disagree with that. I don't think, you know, i don't think they're sitting in St. Pete expecting this team to realistically compete. I think they see this as perhaps another bridge year. And, you know, head into 2019, maybe find a useful part or two, and then add with some of the prospects they have coming through the system. Because I think that's the main reason to watch this team this season, is to see the arrival of Willie Edemas and some of the other uh, potential contributors who are going to be coming up
1: from Durham and even Montgomery as the year goes on. So we were talking just before recording, You were were you the creator of D-Ray's Bay, at least one of the original writers there? I don't remember did you start it? I did not start it. It was started by David Bloom.
3: It was uh, started, I think, a few years before I joined. I joined in August two thousand six, so I have been around a very long time. And <laughs> I see, you know, those are the Devil Ray days. Like my writing yeah. my raised riding career almost began before Evan Longoria was drafted. So. <laughs> Yeah, him seeing him traded and seeing him as like the old guy now is very uh, humbling, let's say, and very um, makes me very aware of my mortality. So I'm glad we talked about that. But no, I was not the founder. I just uh, I hung around there for a few years. And then Tommy Ransel and myself founded uh, The Process Report, which is still around. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's like a tenth of the race blogosphere right there. I don't know. I don't know yeah. how many sites are out there nowadays, but it used to be like two or three with Ray's Index and maybe
1: one or two others there's one probably for every single player on the team so you're <laughs> long long-term raise even d-raise fan and uh, i mean i remember interacting with you back in the early heady days of espionation before vox media was a giant anyway we don't need to reminisce but
0: too bad you guys didn't get some stock options Wrong. (laughs)
1: Excuse me. Well, you got stock options? I never got a dollar from my work there. That's a different conversation. (laughs) So you've been around the the Rays back in the D-Rays days. Long-term fan. I I mean, the Rays were so exciting. Everyone's favorite bandwagon in 2008. The front office's approach hasn't really changed, but then you could say the same of the payrolls, you could say the same of the approaches. <laughs> I know that you were just one person, and uh, you have your own opinion, as we all do about our own favorite teams if we have them, but how has your opinion and fanhood of the Rays changed, not just as you've become like a, a more of a national writer, but I know you've remarked over the off season that you no longer really root for the sort of financial efficiency on which the Rays have built their entire mission so how how do you handle this as as sort of a loyalty at this point now that now that you sort of see through i guess you could say the way that they operate
3: i actually am not really i don't consider myself a Rays fan anymore and it kind of started with the james shields trade you know he was my favorite player please don't laugh please don't laugh at that (laughs) second worst james shields trade (laughs) there you go yeah, they can't even get that right. Jeez. But no, you're right. There's sort of, um I would say there's a, how do I put this? There's something about being a fan of a small market team that kind of shifts your perspective and gets you away from the ethical and moral side where you're kind of willing to justify whatever it takes to win because you know it's an unfair game and you know you kind of have to play on the edges there, play in the gray area. And sometimes it's not gray area, sometimes, you know, manipulating the service time and doing some of the things that the front office did and does. Yeah, it's not good stuff. And I regret a lot of what I co-signed back in the day. And if I had a chance to do it over, I would certainly do it over. And uh, well, you know, maybe I wouldn't do it over because maybe I learned lessons from that that I try to apply nowadays. So, you know, maybe there's a reason for everything and stuff that I look back on and regret now comes in handy. So. As a way, you know, as a guide to what I don't want to do and what I don't want to co-sign and what have you. Um, in terms of this front office, I would say that I think they lost a lot with Andrew Friedman's departure. And I think they lost a lot with Joe Madden's departure. You know, the signature of Andrew Friedman's tenure was that he was really good at roster and asset management. In terms of, you know, he was very good at manipulating the edges of the roster they never just let a guy who was without options go unless you know they had exhausted their options through trade or what have you. Nowadays, that's not true. I mean, you know, this group kind of gives away talent. You saw it with the Dickerson DFA. Oderizzi. there was literally no reason they couldn't have held on to him into the season unless ownership just said, hey, you got to cut the money. Uh, you can extend that even to last year when they gave away Tim Beckham, basically. I mean, I know Tobias Myers is getting hype and all, but he's also a six-foot right-hander and A-ball, so let's be realistic here. There's a decent chance he's a reliever if he even reaches the majors, so I, I'm not going to buy into that at that point. The point is, this group is not very good at that stuff, and it's made me evaluate how we talk about front offices because, you know... When Friedman was around, these were his underlings. And we assume that Eric Neander and Hayne Bloom and, you know, we can keep listing names here, James Click and whomever else you want to throw in there, were smart by association. And we assume that they were, you know, in lockstep with Friedman and that Friedman's views on this and, you know, Friedman's strengths and weaknesses were also the strengths and weaknesses of everyone. And I don't think that's true. And I think if you... Ask around, you know, Friedman's greatest strength, perhaps, as an executive, and I don't just mean in terms of what he does with his rosters and whatnot, is his willingness to intake input from everyone in the front office. You know, he used to ask interns, hey, what do you think of this player? What do you think of this idea and all that? And that's not necessarily something you always see from general managers. With this group, I don't know if that's true or not, but the people I've talked to who used to work for them or who do work for them... Always talk about how they don't feel quite as valued and they don't feel like their input matters as much. And part of that is just the reality of a bloated baseball operations department. I believe they have, if not the largest, one of the largest uh, baseball operations staffs in the game. And that's kind of depressing when you think about it because you look at this roster and you're like, man, all those, all those people, and this is the best you can come up with. So I think, you know, they lost a lot there with Friedman and Madden. I think they may have lost the checks and balances system. And, you know, maybe I'm just, Maybe I'm reading too much into a narrative. You know, maybe I'm, uh, letting the results dictate my thinking too much. And who knows? You know, the Pirates early in the Neil Huntington era, they had horrible PR skills. You know, they had controversy after controversy. The Houston Astros, obviously early in uh, this tenure had horrible PR skills, controversy after controversy. It's possible that in two years, you know, their race plans work out. They're winning. Nobody cares. And I look like an idiot for saying that they had lost a step or what have you. But, I don't consider them the smartest guys in the room anymore, and I think it's possible that they've bought too much into their own hype, and they don't have the checks and balances that are necessary to
0: kind of live on the edge without going over it. Friedman built some of the good Rays teams largely via trades as well as some top picks, and the team is still largely built based on trades. They didn't sign a lot of free agents back then. They still don't. I just checked on Roster Resource where they have a breakdown of every team's 40-man rosters and how those players were acquired. And the average roster in Major League Baseball, 35% of the players on the 40-man come from trade. The Rays, it's 60%, which is easily the highest in Major League Baseball. So they still get a lot of guys via trade, and that used to be a skill of the team, seemingly acquiring undervalued guys via trade. Is it still? Have they had trades work out well for them lately, or has the record really been undistinguished?
3: Uh, Beyond Ademus, I don't know that you can say they have had a lot of trades work out in their favor. You know, the, the Longoria trade, we'll see on that one. But, you know, you go back to the Matt Moore trade, I think it's a win in the sense that they got from underneath Moore's contract, because obviously he's kind of went on a downward spiral since then. And I know that a lot of people like Lucius Fox as a prospect, but you look at Matt Duffy, I mean, he was at the time kind of the headliner of that deal, and who knows what he is anymore? You know, he hasn't played since 2016, and if you look at his career numbers, he had 600 good plate appearances in the majors, well, he's had 400 bad ones, so is he actually good, or is he kind of middling, or what have you, and um, you know, just kind of running through some more of their trades in my head. But Nathan Carnes one probably worked out in their favor, because of Brad Miller's big season, but... I don't know. When was the last time they really had a slam dunk trade? I'm trying to. I'm really trying to think of it. And I'm not sure I can come up with an answer off the top of my head. It's been. It's been a few years, right?
0: Yeah, it would have been very easy to summon some examples years back, but yeah, now you you have to think about it.
3: I guess I would say I liked what they did at the deadline. Uh, I thought the Lucas Duda deal in particular was pretty good, and then he came to St. Pete and kind of collapsed. So. Maybe maybe the kiss of death is me liking their deals nowadays, and maybe <laughs> you know maybe there's some reverse juju going on here. And if so, hey, that's good news for Denard Span and uh, CJ <laughs> Crone and Joey Wendell and
1: some of these other players, right? Mm-hmm. So the uh, the Rays, as, shortly after trading Joe Jake, Jake not Odorizzi, Uh Jake Odorizzi, <laughs> they lost Honeywell and they lost De Leon both to Tommy John surgery, which dealt a substantial blow to their starting pitching depth, of course. But it seems like even before then, the Rays uh, seem to have been thinking about using this sort of weird four-man-ish rotation. And so we saw Yanni Chirinos and Ryan Yarbrough both make the roster on opening day. Rays aren't going to have a fifth starter, or in a sense, they're going to have two fifth starters. But you also have Matt Andrees, you got Anthony Bondi, you got some others. What do you make of what the Rays are looking to do with the fifth rotation spot? Because clearly, it's not so much about saving money—you still need to pay for that roster spot no matter what. But is this going to overtax some of their relievers? Is this going to be a good use of just sort of optimization of of these pitchers that they're going to be rotating through the fifth spot, or is this just going to be something we forget about in two months when they look like a normal baseball team? That's a great question, and I, frankly, I'm skeptic of it because,
3: to me, you know, Matt Andres, He's nothing special, you know. Let's not pretend he's anything special. But I think he's perfectly fine to try out there every fifth day as your quote-unquote fifth starter, and you know, let him face his 18 batters or his 20 batters if you know it's a good day or what have you, and then pull him, and then you know you can put in uh, Yarbrough or Chirinos or Kitridge or whomever they see uh, taking you know two maybe three innings on a good day. I guess I just find it kind of weird from that perspective that they're basically going to hold, what, three roster spots, maybe four roster spots for that fifth game. And I feel like that's really going to limit Kevin Cash's options when, you know, it's Archer on the mound or Snell or Faria. But the point is, it also kind of changes how they have to build their roster. And if you look at their bullpen, I believe the only guys who don't have options are Colome, which, you know, he's your closer, Sergio Romo. He's your top setup man. And then Chaz Rowe, who may or may not be in a setup role at this point with, you know, with uh, Hudson and Jennings getting put away. So that's weird to me as well because it limits what you can do. Like they couldn't go out there and sign Greg Holland right now because they need all those spots that they can option players out so they can bring somebody back in who's fresh. And I guess the other thing I would say here about this is that this is not an efficient rotation. I mean, the only guy on their staff who averaged six-plus innings last year as a starter, was Alex Cobb. Uh, Archer is, I think he was like 5.9. Evaldi has never been that efficient. Snell, Lord knows, is not that efficient. So, you know, but you could say some of that's by design. You know, they w- didn't want Snell working seven innings or eight innings or what have you because of a third time through the order penalty. But I think they're running a risk of this being an absolute mess. And, you know, nothing against Trinos, nothing against Yarborough. From my perspective, though, if those guys are better than Andrews, then start them. And if they're not, then they're not special enough to bend over backward to fit them into the roster. So, you know, they also have Anthony Banda, who they got in a trade. And frankly, I would have thought that he would be the number five starter because he's pretty close to being ready. You know, a three-pitch lefty. Maybe they think he needs some more time in development to... You know, what I floated before about him is that, you know, he could elevate his fastball more and maybe they're going to work on his mechanics so he's a little bit more straight to the plate. Whether that's true or not, we'll see, but, you know, maybe that's why he's in AAA. But they also have a couple other arms like Wood and who, and, uh, I think Jose Mujica is actually a reliever at this point. If not, in theory, he could come up for two or three innings as well. So, You know, they have a number of options, but I'm not really a fan of it. I think there's going to be a lot of negative cascading effects that we can't really capture. And, you know, I heard Dick Bozeman talk, and Dick Bozeman is one of their instructors in the lower levels of the minors. And he made the point that a few years back, they had Kirby Yates and C.J. Reifenhauser. And both were rookies or, you know, younger players trying to break into the majors. And it was pretty tough on them to come up, you know, throw a couple of good innings and then get sent down just because of a numbers game. And that stuck with me. Because we tend to overlook the human aspect of these kind of things, but I feel like if you're Ryan Yarbrough or, or you know Torino's or whomever, and say you have you know a ten inning week, and in that ten inning week, it's you know you did pretty well. Like you kept the team in the game, you maybe allowed one or two runs or what have you. There's a chance that despite you doing as well as possible, you're going to head to Durham for you know two weeks or whatever because of a numbers game. And I don't know if that's gonna, you know, have a tangible effect on their performance, probably not because these guys are all professionals, but it's something to think about. And, you know, I don't know if this is the most pitcher friendly approach for other reasons as well, because yeah, you're gonna be pitching some of these guys two, three, maybe four consecutive days, just because you have no other choice and that can't be good on their arms. So I have a lot of questions about it. I don't think they know how it's going to work out. I think you kind of see that in some of the tentative statements because, you know, Kevin Cash has said, oh, we're going to do this through April and hopefully beyond. Well, he's not saying they're going to do it the entire year because I don't think they have any idea how this is going to play out. They're just kind of using this uh, vacuum that exists in St. Pete to run this science experiment and see what comes
0: of it. Yeah. Well, Chris Archer seems to think it's a good idea or said something to that effect to Travis Sachik, or at least that it makes sense from a team's perspective to keep costs down and everything, which is maybe not the same as it being a good idea competitively. But I want to ask about him because he's obviously been one of the most trade-rumored players in baseball over the last couple of years. He is a product of one of the good trades that we talked about earlier, the Matt Garza deal, or I guess we could call it the friend of the podcast, Fernando Perez deal. (laughs) (laughs) No one else calls it that. But he is good. He is signed for a lot less than he would be worth on the open market. They have team options on him at very affordable rates through 2021. Why have they hung on to him rather than making him the centerpiece of a Matt Garza-style trade?
3: I thought you were going to call it the Sam Fold trade because I, <laughs> you I promise you. Sam too. Fold's probably <laughs> listening out there right now. Hi, Sam. With Archer, I honestly think it's because it's almost impossible to get market value back for him. Especially if you believe in him being better than his, you know, ERA has been. And that was one of the highlights of the spring, by the way, was Brett Honeywell basically calling Archer out <laughs> for his ERA underperformance.
0: Right. Does that matter anymore though? I mean, no <laughs> one teams uh, especially are not looking at his ERA and being fooled by that if it's not really reflective of who he is as a pitcher. So I I don't know whether I I've I'm always hearing something like that, but you know, it was true at one time. I don't know whether it's still true.
3: I don't know if it's true. I would yeah. say though I suppose it matters in a sense, though, right? Because if you're allowing more earned runs than you should, or more runs than you should, I mean, at some point, does that suggest that maybe we're missing something in an analysis of you? or yeah, is this just if
0: it continues long enough, could yeah. be, yeah.
3: I don't know if that's the case with him. Obviously, he yeah, has very good stuff. And, you know, he's really a smart individual, basically what you would want out of the face of a franchise type with his work in the community and his thoughtfulness. And you saw it in that Saltrick article. I mean, that was a very thoughtful response. Yeah. Very well thought out response to all the possible variables and whatnot. But yeah, I think the reason they've kept him is because, frankly, no one's willing to meet their asking price. Teams nowadays value those uh, cost-controlled players a lot more than they did you know, 10 years ago or even when that Garza trade was made in, what, 2011, I believe, January? Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh man, we are old. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think the league has changed a lot. And I don't know if it's really possible to get that kind of return anymore because you look at what the Pirates got for Garrett Cole and... It was kind of underwhelming to me in a sense, too. It wasn't like, you know, the Garza trade or the Shields, the original Shields trade. Or, I mean, the David Price trade underwhelmed me, too. So I think it's just one of those things where maybe you're not able to get the same return. Or if you do go for that kind of prospect package, you have to do what the A's did last year with Sonny Gray and take on a number of injury and attrition risk. So I think that plays into it. I also think that they don't want to completely punt. You know, the Razor is sort of in that old Cleveland-Oakland tier or the they usually are anywhere where they kind of take their chance and hope for an 85 win season and to sneak into the postseason. And now that hasn't happened in a few years. They've been a couple wins off, but I don't think they want to completely bottom out, especially when they're trying to, you know, get that new stadium approved and all that good stuff. But I do think there's a chance this team accidentally bottoms out. And if it does, it wouldn't surprise me if they do move Archer at the deadline. That said, I can't guarantee it, and I'm not sure when a team is going to meet their asking price. You would think maybe in the next winter, the winter after that, something like that. And I do wonder how much his performance would play into that. Because if he goes out there and he underperforms his ERA again, I think that would be used against him. Even if teams don't necessarily believe in those numbers as being predictive or meaningful... I think they would absolutely use it against the Rays and say he's not a true ace. He's not anything more than a slightly above average starting pitcher or what have you. Now, you know, we can sit here and talk about the um, the good faith <laughs> that it takes to argue that or what have you. But yeah, I, I don't know when he's going to get dealt. I just assume at some point he's going to get dealt because the quickest way out of St. Petersburg is to make money and to be uh, attractive to other teams. The Rays
1: right now project to have an opening day, it's only a few days away, an opening day payroll of <laughs> $77.06 million, which is low and also the highest opening day payroll in Rays history by about $125,000. So <laughs> the the Rays recently have inked, it's official, right? They inked a new TV deal, a 15-year deal with, uh, with Fox Sports Regional Network. I believe that happened about a month ago. There has been the news talking about the uh, new site for a new ballpark which has come out i'm sure that you know more off the top of your head than i do about this are we getting closer to seeing the rays operate like more of a normal baseball team or do you suspect that they're always going to be driven by this sort of penny pinching approach that they've had since almost almost their inception except for a few brief weird spendy phases in the uh, late past millennium yeah the hit show days vince the moly yeah wow <laughs>
3: See, I wasn't riding then. Otherwise, I would be like a bison. Uh, I mean, I would be sheesh. I would be retired. <laughs> you <if> born, I... <laughs> barely. I mean, I hope they get to where they spend more because you know you mentioned that seventy-seven million dollar number, and if you do the math on some of the other numbers they got, like John Heyman reported, they received fifty million in revenue sharing last year. They got fifty million from the BAM Tech sale. They're getting, you know, $30 million or whatever from their local television deal. And you're right, you know, they're signing that new win, which, which is going to be worth like $80 million per season. And you keep adding those numbers up and you start looking at that payroll and you're like, really? You couldn't keep Evan Longoria for another year? You couldn't keep David Price? You couldn't keep, you know, Jacob and Arizzi for $5 million or what have you? That said, I don't know. I mean, I think the ideal path here is to become like the Minnesota Twins or I guess the Milwaukee Brewers and, you know, flirt with that 100 million plus dollar payroll every season but i can't guarantee it and my suspicion is once they get the ballpark they will be up for sale and that will allow this ownership group to cash out it'll complete you know what a maybe a 15 year run depending on when that ballpark opens if they do get approval for it and all and yeah that's my guess and then from there who knows i mean i know a lot of the locals want jeff vinnick who owns the tampa bay lightning to You know, buy the Rays and take over, and I don't know how realistic that is, and I don't know what his approach would be, even though he's a minority owner of the Boston Red Sox. So, who knows? Uh, I guess that's the that's the best answer I can give here. I really don't know. I just hope for the local sake, and I hope for the market's sake that yeah, they become more like a regular team who is able to retain their best players for more than you know their initial six years, and that they don't have to sign these guys to you know Scott Kingery level deals in order to hold on to them for longer than their uh, six years and maybe then they won't have to do steely stuff like claim to be building their best 25-man roster while farming out Willie Ademus so they can start Adini Echevri and Joey Wendell and all this stuff but Whether they ever get to that point, I'm honestly not sure.
0: Ray's offense in the last couple of years has been pretty uninspiring. It hasn't been bad exactly, but they strike out a ton. They struck out the most of any team last year, at least their non-pitchers did. I think they were second in the majors in 2016 in that category, which is okay. It's survivable if you do other things well. They don't do other things that well. And We saw last year the Astros, who had been a very high strikeout team, prioritized contact seemingly, although they did it at the expense of nothing because they were just amazing at everything. They were the Astros. They won the World Series. But – do you think that the Rays offense is designed suboptimally? Like, is it an offense for an earlier era of baseball when putting the ball in play wasn't quite as valuable as it is in this high home run era? Or is it just kind of a product of trying to keep costs down and generally having to go after pretty bland players?
3: Uh, my guess is it's probably the, the latter. I would say it's designed suboptimally, though, because you look at this lineup and it's basically full of attrition risk, either health or performance. And I know some people have been trying to, you know, push this narrative that the Rays are just thinking forward, and you know, they assume that the uh, the league is going to cycle back to more contact-heavy approach, and they're just trying to get ahead of that and whatever. But I really don't see that. I think it's what you said. They're just going out there inquiring whatever they can acquire, with the hopes that you know these guys maybe have a big year and. Either they can stick around, you know. CJ Crohn, I mean, when they got CJ Crone, it was the corresponding move to Dickerson being designated for assignment. And I remember Mark Topkin, the Tampa Bay Times beat writer, who wrote something like, "The Rays are okay releasing Dickerson because they'll get three years of service time from Crohn and they think that's a justifiable swap." And in my head, I'm like, if you plan on CJ Crohn being on your roster for three years, then you're in a big trouble because that's a bad idea. You know, that's not, that's not good. So I think, yeah, they're suboptimally designed because they have a ton of guys who are probably going to miss, you know, significant time due to injury or they just might play so poorly they get released or whatever. I mean, Brad Miller could have been non-tendered. Carlos Gomez, who knows there? You know, Etzer can't hit. You got Matt Duffy, who we talked about earlier. You have Kevin Kiermaier, who I believe he's averaged 110 games or something like that over the last few years. I know the stat on Kiermaier is he's played more than 110 games once. And I think the stat on span is that he's averaged 110 games over the last three seasons, and you have to think that him playing on that turf is not going to help improve his durability. And then, you know, you just keep going. Wilson Ramos has had injury issues throughout his career. CJ Krohn is CJ Krohn. It took a monster second half for him to finish with like a 99 OPS+. And people are touting that monster second half as proof that he's the new uh, Justin Smoke or Jose Batista, you know, whatever second half breakout you want to throw out there. But I don't think any of us uh, should buy that. And yet you just keep
1: going. So I would say they're built from spare parts, and that's exactly what they look like they're built from. I'm looking at this on the uh, the Fangraph's depth chart. The Rays have exactly one hitter who's projected to be uh, above average, and that's Brad Miller at plus one run above average. <laughs> so great for the Rays. There's a lot of like mysterious there's question marks all over this roster. I'm interested in CJ Crone, but I don't know what he's going to be. I don't even know what Joey Wendell is, but he's starting. I know there's every almost every single position – on the offense is weird and I guess they have upside just because you don't necessarily know what they are like I don't know what Malik Smith is going to be but he sure doesn't hit the ball hard or hit the ball often but anyway this is all just prologue for a Blake Snell question somehow (laughs) Uh, Blake Snell You know, he had that shutout streak in the minors that got him on the radar, came up to the majors, had interesting stuff, stat cast darling, all that stuff, but you know, he walked right. the world, and then at the, the start of last season, he walked the world, but he really made meaningful improvements down the stretch. He pitched like a number one, number two starter. His stuff was faster. He was getting strikeouts. He cut his walk rate like in half. There were reports that he was just, you know, uh, trying more, He was putting <laughs> more effort in maturing sort of on the fly, and you know, he was a kid. He had a lot of hype, came up. Threw a lot of balls, started throwing strikes, started throwing better strikes. So if the Rays have any sort of hope at all of wildcard condition in this season and maybe next season, it's they're going to need some starting pitchers to emerge. And Snell seems like he has the best chance to be the guy behind Chris Archer. So how much do you believe in Snell's maturity and, and stretch around last season versus how much do you think he'll just go back to walking the world again?
3: I have to believe in it because, you know, we've seen similar young pitchers, especially lefties and especially taller lefties come up struggle with their command a little bit, and then figure things out. And I think they're crediting a lot of his turnaround to Kyle Snyder, who was the pitching coach in Durham last year. He's now the big league pitching coach, and he comes with a very good reputation. I know that some other teams had asked around about him before they promoted him to their big league pitching coach, which speaks to his reputation around the league as well. So, yeah, I think you're right that Snell is the most likely to emerge as you know the, the ever front-line starter. Uh, I do like Feria a lot but I think he's more in that James Shields, Alex Cobb mold. He's always probably going to be a little underrated because he doesn't do it with a conventional arsenal, doesn't do it with a very sexy approach or anything. He just knows how to pitch and he's tougher than a dollar stake and all that good stuff. But, you know, still has everything that he needs in order to become a frontline starter. And, you know, whether he retains all those gains he made last, uh, last half, I don't know, but I would, Think there's a fairly good chance that he's going to retain a lot of them. And I think there's every reason to believe he's going to be at least their second best starter. And it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up being their best starter because of the weird Archer stuff. And because it's possible Archer is traded at the deadline and Snell finishes the year leading the Rays in innings pitch, which is a heck of an idea considering I think he averaged what, like 5.4 innings per start last year? Something like that. So yeah, I guess I'm on board the Blake Snell hype train.
0: We haven't talked a lot about the farm system. It's a decent farm system, but Honeywell and DeLeon, of course, are going to miss this season. We talked a bit about Adamus. Let's briefly talk about Brendan McKay. A lot of the talent in the system is at the lower levels. Brendan McKay is at the lower levels. Will he last as a two-way player? It sounds like they're really going to try it this season. They tried it last year after he was drafted fourth overall. Yeah. So if Otani doesn't turn out to be the two-way savior that we're all hoping, if he struggles this season, will we all shift our attention to Brendan McKay? Or do you not think this experiment will last that long?
3: I'm a skeptic, and I'm probably going to get yelled at. But uh, I would have preferred Kyle Wright if I were just choosing... As you know, the Rays scouting director last June, I just think Kyle Wright is a more interesting prospect, which I know that's ridiculous to say, considering we're literally talking about a two-way player. But with McKay, I have a lot of skepticism about his ability to make it work and to do the pitching and the hitting at the same time. And you talk to scouts and you talk to people who evaluate him, and one of the potential flies in the ointment was that a lot of his production at Louisville came against weaker competition. And... I don't know how much that means. I really don't. I don't know if it's a sign that he just kind of dominated the cupcakes and, you know, went into hiding or went into a shell or whatever against the tougher competition. And I don't know if it's meaningful. I don't know if it's a small sample. I don't know if it's a case where he hit the ball hard every time he faced a good team. And then, you know, they still happen to have a fielder there or what? But I guess that's at least a little bit worrisome from my point of view. And, you know, it's very tough to reach the majors either as a pitcher or a hitter to do both is basically unheard of and I guess I guess I would put it this way it's the coward's way to say like I'm going to bet against this guy being able to hit and pitch all the way to the majors but I guess I have to take the coward's way here I don't think it's likely I don't think it's going to work and honestly I think everyone is going to be disappointed with how his career works out because uh, I know you're ever podcast so it's Michael Bauman once compared him to what James Loney and J.A. Happ (laughs) and people were mad about that like people were really (laughs) mad even though if you think about it like those are fine careers. They're not sexy careers, but they're fine. You know, you would take that from, you know, you would take that from a lot of your prospects. If you could have J. A. Happ guaranteed as like you know number four pick or whatever, you would probably take that given the average or what have you. But yeah, I don't think it's going to work. And if he proves me wrong, he proves me wrong. I mean, like I said, it's a coward's way of uh, looking at this. But that's the way I'm taking. It. What I don't know, y'all think it's going to work. Well, no, targets. no, no. You're you're being interviewed.
0: <laughs> it's always safer to bet the, <laughs> against something that hasn't happened in a century or so. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's end, as we always do, with the win total prediction. How many wins will the Rays end up with in 2018?
3: Yeah, before we went on, you told me this was coming. And I said, I think I said 79 wins the last time I was asked. And then you said, how many Tommy John surgeries have happened since? And I couldn't remember. <laughs> So I'm going to stick with 79 because I can't remember and I don't want to change my number and, you know, in six months have someone find, you know, find me on Twitter and say, oh, you predicted 79. Why are you beating your chest about 73 or whatever? And me be like, well, that was before so-and-so. And basically, I just don't want to get bugged for my prediction. So I'm going to go, with the again, the coward's way and say 79 because I think that's right around where the non-Pakoda projection systems have them. and I will say, though, as I mentioned earlier, I think that if you were kind of trying to build a team that could passively tank, that this is a great, great roster. Because the lineup, again, there's a lot of attrition risk. The bullpen could be an absolute mess. And I have to believe that if they fall out of it by the deadline, that they would look to move Archer, column a, I think there's a case to be made that they should trade Kevin Kiermeyer based on what the turf has done to their outfielders. So I'm going to say 79. And I would say that if I was going to go in one direction, up or down, I would actually go down because, you know, the prospects that are on the way are probably going to have their service time manipulated to the point where they're not going to have as big of an impact as they could have with other teams. So 79. But if they finish on either side of
0: that, it's going to be below it. Mm-hmm. Well, Jose Batista remains unsigned as we oh. speak. If he, were, <laughs> if he were to sign with the Rays, would your 79 go up or down?
3: Uh, it'd probably go down, but they're probably banking on it going down. That would be one of those moves where if they give him like 600 plate appearances, you know the, gig, the jig is up. You know, they're definitely looking to get another top pick or whatever.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I guess the the one thing they might do well is play defense, right? Or at least I know in your preview at Baseball Prospectus, I know they're projected to lead the league in fielding runs above average or something. I don't know if that's that true of right? the other because... defensive systems, but if Batista is part of that defense, that will no longer be as true either. But there's always Kiermaier.
3: Brad Miller's part of the defense though, so I mean, really, right, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> I will say, you know, Malik Smith, he can't hit, but he can run. And Mm -hmm. is Joey Wendell a good fielder? Because I feel like I've never heard Joey Wendell called more than like a okay fielder at second base. So I don't know. I don't know if they're going to be the best defense. I guess that's a lot of Kiermaier and Echevarria right there, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I tried to end on a positive note, but you wouldn't (laughs) let me. (laughs) So that will end this preview and end all of our previews. Thank you for helping us bring this thing home, RJ. You can read him, of course, at CPS Sports and find him on Twitter at R underscore J underscore Anderson. And also hear him on the DFA podcast at Baseball Prospectus. Thank you, RJ. Thank you all for having me. Two fun facts about the Rays, by the way, that RJ and Jeff respectively wanted me to mention. Rays reliever Andrew Kittredge threw 71% sliders last year. That's a lot of sliders. And Jeff notes that Malik Smith was the only hitter with a lower average exit velocity than Billy Hamilton. So that's not so good. So that will do it. For the team preview series Thank you for following us Through this Several week odyssey I know some people Love the team preview series Some people sort of Check out for the team Preview series It does help us Attract a lot of new listeners A lot of people Find us through The team preview series It helps get you ready For the season It helps get us Ready for the season Certainly me And it can be a grind But hey I know no one wants To listen to anyone Talk about how much work It is to talk about Baseball a little bit Longer than usual I know that's a World's smallest Violin situation Although I will say That A lot of the guests we have on this series are beat writers, and they really have a hard job. I know it's still writing about baseball and covering baseball, which sounds appealing and in many ways is appealing, but man, those people work hard and around the clock. I do not envy them. So thanks to all of them for finding time for us somehow, some way in the midst of tweeting lineups and injury updates and play-by-play and game stories and post-game quotes and all the rest of the modern 24-7 beat writer life. So we hope you enjoyed the series. And if you missed any episodes and you want to catch up, you can click on any Effectively Wild Team preview. Podcast and Fangrass, and there are links there to every single team. You can click on them and it will take you right to the episode. And of course, you can check out com our sister site started by Effectively Wild listeners, where they've been faithfully previewing in written form every team that we've talked about on the podcast, so that's another good primer. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com/slash effectively wild, signing up for a small monthly amount. Five listeners who have recently done so include Scott Moss, John Armbruster Corey Gowan. Kevin Schlock And Jamie Herbst Thanks to all of you You can join our Facebook group At facebook.com Slash groups Slash effectively wild You can rate And review And subscribe to Effectively wild On iTunes Thank you to Dylan Higgins For his editing assistance Which has taken him A lot longer During these team previews too So I appreciate that You can keep your questions And comments For me and Jeff Coming via email At podcastfangraphs.com Or via the Patreon messaging system And we will be back Very soon Not with the team preview podcast But with a whole other podcast We're looking forward to getting back into the regular routine, which is no routine at all. So, we will talk to you about a topic or some topics very soon. We'll be back before opening day.
1: I know it's over, still I cling. I don't know
3: where else I can go. Over, roll over. I know it's over. It had never really begun.
0: But in my heart it was so real When you even spoke to me and said